Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest on this Currents episode is Robin Hansen, who we've had on the show a couple of times before. Rob is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and is the author of two books, at least, I think he's written three or four, but uh, two that we have talked about on a previous episode of the show, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, and The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the Earth. Yep, that's indeed the title, and it's a very detailed and deep analysis of just that. As I said, we discussed that back on actually the second episode on this podcast series. So if you want to hear what Robin had to say about those two books, uh, Google uh, Robin Hansen, Jim Rutshow, EP2, uh, or go to the episode page at jimrutshow.com for this episode. And as usual, we'll have links to everything we talk about here. In addition to uh, flogging undergraduates and writing books, uh, Robin also has an extraordinarily interesting blog at overcomingbias.com and a quite interesting tweet stream at at Robin Hansen on Twitter. Check them out. It's not a waste of time. It's time well spent. Today, we're going to have a conversation about one of those, at least starting from one of those essays on overcomingbias.com, where Robin... uh, postulated, I guess you made it up, I've never seen the term before, something called right talkism, and, uh, you know, dove into what it is and what it's good for and what it's not good for. So, Robin, let me uh, hand it over to you and tell us about right talkism. Yes, I made up the word, and I'm surprised I had to because it's such a basic feature of human behavior. You, you, I figured somebody must have already been describing it, but since in a quick search I couldn't find something, I made up my own word. So what's right talkism? It's this habit humans have of focusing on words and as opposed to action. Uh, That is, we talk to each other as if our words are some prelude or preparation or support for doing things. uh, And we don't realize often that, uh, no, we, we aren't really interested in what we do. It's all about the words. And in particular, we're really eager to have other people repeat our words. We want to say a certain set of words and have other people say similar words. And then we say, yay, they say the same words as us. And you might think, well, that's because we want to then do something with those words, but not really. So uh, a large range of human behavior can be understood in these terms, not just social media, but even education, professions. So the word professions comes from professing and the earliest professions, you know, what it was to become a professional was to profess certain things. You are a professional if you professed the same things as the other professionals. And our taste for education is often this taste to have people who are in leadership roles and important roles who all profess or say the same sort of things. And they have to go through years of training and testing to show that they know how to say the same things that other people say. And even today, when people say are trying to uh, solve and and, and fix racism, they often focus on policies that are just about making people say things without really actually doing anything different. Uh, 
they jump all over like the exact words people use. And for example, they want to how to fix police. Well, they want more education for police where they train police to say more things. And how are you going to fix racism in the workplace where you're going to have training sessions where people say things. <laughs> and it's just all through our lives where, where people are, I mean, even it's well known in politics that many polit most politicians take positions that they really can't do much about, but voters care a lot about the positions they take. And they often care more about what they say than what they do. Yep, absolutely. And then, of course, this ties into something you've talked about before, uh, which is how much human behavior is driven by social signaling and uh, what we might even call cheap signals. You might, uh, although that would be under, under some comparison to something else as if we cared about something else. <laughs> so you might say, well, if I want people to really say, do something about racism, then I want to make sure that they not only say they're going to do something, but that they actually do something. And then if I might look at what they say and say, well, that's just cheap talk. You can, it's easy to say things, but it turns out, say, when companies all declare they're going to do something, we, we take that as, uh, you know, we're done. They say they do something and, and we don't really even check on what they actually do. And we don't seem to care much about what they actually do. The point is to make them all say the right thing. Yep, as we you know, and you know, the folk wisdom version of that is talk is cheap, right? In fact, I'm going to jump way ahead on my topics list because it fits exactly to what we just talked about about corporations saying things. Uh, you mentioned in a recent tweet uh, yesterday's article in the Atlantic: "Beware of corporate promises," where a bunch of co uh, corporations said a whole bunch of uh, seemingly enlightened things, but guess what? Their behavior was quite the opposite. Right. It was, it was not just that they didn't do anything. They did the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> so, right. So they declared that they were going to put priority on other people besides shareholders. And because and the ones who did that put more priority on shareholders by these sort of metrics they had there. Yeah, and frankly, if you're a game theorying motherfucker corporate executive, hey, why not? Talk is cheap. And if you get a bunch of benefit for a gesture, of course you're going to do it, unfortunately. Well, now, in some of our private lives, uh, you know, talk is a prelude to other things. So, you know. Often in our private lives, if somebody promises to do something, you, you take that as encouraging because then you can check if they don't do it. And then you can start to complain about, hey, you promised. And that pushes them all the more. So in many private or familiar contexts, talk isn't cheap because we have these ways of checking on what people said and then pushing them to, to be consistent with their words and actions. But we just don't notice that in these larger spheres, we just drop all that. Yeah. We stop checking on whether they're doing what they say, and we stop pushing them to do more of what they say. We just are satisfied with what they say. Yeah. Uh, and also, let's think about you know the fact that in politics in particular, uh, allocating money to really do something, it's costly, right? And it's really easy for, like, say, a politician to say, let's reduce racism and policing. And we, you know, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I happen to know a little bit about that, right? I'm from a cop family. My dad was a Washington, D.C. cop for his career, and then he had a second career as federal law enforcement. My brother just retired a few years ago from a long career in federal law enforcement. My favorite uh, cousin, one of my favorite cousins, not to insult my other 65 first cousins, uh, was a Prince George's County, Maryland cop, you know, the famous infamous in the day, Prince George's County cop. Two of my best friends recently retired uh, from careers in the subway at bus police in Washington, D.C. So I know my cops, right? And as you said, uh, you can uh, have them mouth the right words and ain't could do shit. I can tell you that because you know, when they're not in public, they're going to be mouthing the wrong words. Uh, and something else I think I believe you alluded to in your in your piece is that uh, a 
more obvious, realistic way to reduce police racism, and I wouldn't even say racism because the evidence isn't particularly strong that the police are racist, but they do kill too many fucking people, both black and white, uh, at least U.S. police do compared to other countries. You know, number of police killed by the U- uh, people killed by the police in the U.S., like a thousand in a typical year. In Germany, it's like eight, right? How could that be, right? There's something seriously wrong with how we do our policing. That's the real problem. But anyway, uh, one obvious answer, which I think you alluded to, was that you could require a four-year college degree. As it turns out, typical cops have an IQ of about 105, what you'd expect from kind of the higher end of uh, high school grads or, you know, uh, some college, as they say. If you upgraded that to an IQ of 110 to 115, which is more typical of a four-year college grad, make a big difference, as would the exposure to different ways of thinking, uh, you know, all the things that we think we get, whether that we do or not. Well, so that that's that's a key question here. So, like, I, I wouldn't mind having an IQ test as an entrance requirement for many sorts of jobs. And as you may know, they often have a maximum IQ requirement for U.S. police jobs. People have been not hired because they had too high an IQ. I can believe that, but yeah, you know, I would say I would want one ten to one fifteen. Okay, but so so that's a different issue than education. So I'd still say this habit we have of requiring education is more like right talkism because what education really makes you do is it makes you say the certain things. Yep, I I, I do know, agree, and it doesn't really make you smarter. It, it might check that you're smarter, but there's a lot cheaper ways to check that you're smarter. Absolutely. So the requirement so. that you actually have a four-year degree is much more about making sure you're molded into the person who says the right things at the right time in the right way. It doesn't mean you actually do policing any different. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And, 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 and it's good to disentangle. I had a really good podcast episode with a guy named Jason Brennan, where we talked a lot about how an awful lot of higher education ain't nothing but social signaling. But anyway, let's get back to the point I was trying to make, which is let's just say we wanted to upgrade the average cop IQ from 104 to 112.5, right? That's going to cost money. And why is it going to cost money? Because there's competition in the job marketplace, frankly, a lot of it based on something sort of like IQ, right? Uh, the, the, the higher the higher G-loaded an occupation is, in general, the better it pays uh, up to a level. You know, obviously, corporate executives are not as smart as mm-hmm. maybe economics professors, but they make a shitload more money. But up, up to, say, 150000 a year or something like that, uh, there's a pretty strong correlation between G-loading of jobs and uh, and payment. So, so for we economists, we tend to prefer that we put the constraints on outputs rather than inputs. So for example, you might say, well, it'd be better if teachers were smarter, so let's make an IQ requirement. But you know, you might, you might say, well, if, if you had a competitive market for teachers, wouldn't they want to choose smart teachers if that was actually useful? And so probably the, the, the deeper problem is just that the incentives for the actors are not you know, going to encourage good behavior and that's being revealed through the fact that they're not selecting high IQ. Uh, but IQ isn't necessarily the fundamental cause. It's more of a symptom of the, of the underlying cause, that the, the incentives for that sort of position are uh, to do things a certain way. And, you know, IQ tends to get in the way of that, apparently, at the moment. And if we could change the incentives so that they would do better things, such that being smart was useful, then there would be more of a tendency to choose smart people for those roles. Yeah, but there's also the economics. I mean, IQ costs. I mean, I, I know that as I've hired thousands of people in my business career. And I, uh, but I, what I found interestingly was that, say, for technologists, which I hired, uh, uh, particularly in the DC area where the 
where the uh, hiring of techies was mostly uh, driven by Beltway bandits who were hiring, hiring resumes because they got paid an hourly rate from the U.S. government based on the content of the resume yeah. <laughs> uh, of the practitioner rather than their actual skill. I arbitraged the fuck out of that system by paying on average 15% more uh, than the Beltway bandit would uh, would pay for an equivalent resume. However, I cherry picked the fuck out of the cognitive elite. Uh, and you know, for 15% to get, let's say 15 IQ points is money very well spent. And again, I'm using IQ in a very right. gross sense. That doesn't really mean IQ. Great technologists, yeah, they need an IQ of about 125. Uh, but one that's re- got that's really, really good and really, really smart is a shitload more valuable than 15% more. So, so let's talk about, though, valuable for what? So that's the essence of right talkism. So if you look at, say, the professions in, in the United States and which of them tend to lean left or right, uh, you'll find that the left-leaning professions tend to be ones where there's a lot of talking, <laughs> not just therapy and art and uh, education and law and journalism, uh, these lean heavily to the left and uh, they are just very talky professions. <laughs> if you look at the most right-leaning professions, they are not talky professions, even when they're high prestige, like medicine and military, police, uh, construction, insurance. And so this emphasis on talking is a more left-leaning preference. And I'm not sure exactly why, but in some sense, uh, you know, IQ is very valuable for talking, uh, but it's not clear necessarily that it's valuable socially to, if, if what the profession is mainly doing is producing talking. And we have to ask, well, is it useful talking? That's a very good point. Uh, but let's hop back up on my topic list a little bit and go into some of the history and examples of comparison and contrasting uh, systems, historical systems for running societies that were more talky versus more uh, substance. And I think uh, one of the ones you talked about was the, the Chinese uh, history right. of conflict between legalism and Confucianism, for instance. Right. So uh, very early on, in terms of our historical records of, of writing, apparently recently we found that China's history goes way back beyond that in, in unknown ways. But uh, early in the history of, of Chinese thing, there was a legalism uh, which was uh, very focused on incentives and making people do the right thing by having giving them strong incentives. And then Confucianism was the other sort of major alternative at the time. And it was about sort of making people who talked right and who sort of you know had the right attitudes and uh, then had a lot of discretion. And Confucianism kind of won out, although the actual results are some mix. And famously, uh, the Chinese world picked their elites through this educational system where they had these really tough exams, but these exams weren't on anything useful. They are on poems and history and things like that. Uh, they didn't really have much to do with administration of the Chinese state. Nevertheless, that was this major system for a very long time was picking people on the basis of that. And the justification, if you, you know, ask people is, well, you make people who think right because they talk right. <laughs> If you, you know, get into the, these kind of poems and the minds of the poets and you, you, you can think in their thoughts and you can spit things back the way they would have said things, then you can think in the terms of these kind of people. You, you, and their thinking is in terms of justice and, and moral rightness and goodness in the world. And so if we can only train people who just immerse themselves in those thoughts and talk in those terms and then we give them power, things will go well. <laughs> And we sort of adopt that today in, in our world. We have this, you know, intense co- competition for 
prestigious college education, maybe graduate education. And then we put those people in power, but their education isn't really that related to the things they do later. But what we really do ensure is that they have immersed themselves in and can spit back and really have assimilated the style of thinking that we want our elites to have, which is very much, you know, detailed and complicated and immersed with our culture and our poets. Uh, and that's how we feel often good that our leaders are good people because they talk right. Yep. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work. Now, another example that you didn't mention but struck me when I was reading it was uh, kind of comparing and contrasting uh, medieval Christianity, uh, Catholicism, I should say, medieval Catholicism versus Protestantism. You know, one of the distinctions between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism, particularly sharp at the towards the end of the medieval period, uh, was Catholicism is very much around belief and grace, you know, this intangible, talky things, while the Protestants focused a lot more on good works, quote unquote. And one could think of that as another example. Although, you know, the major wars between Protestants and Catholicism were wars about talking. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> they weren't wars about the good works. And Christianity in general, all of these factions, is to be contrasted with, say, the Roman religion, uh, that it displaced, and most of the other ancient religions, which were much less about beliefs and talk. Uh, this was one of the distinguishing features of Islam and Christianity and the, and the more modern religions that have displaced the older ones is this emphasis on talk and that you have the wars over talking. You know, obviously the, the Protestant Catholic wars and the various wars between Protestants are all wars about pretty obscure talky things that don't really show up much in good works and the ordinary things they do. Uh, that's true, too. Uh, another example I thought of, not exactly parallel to what you talked about, but it's close, uh, and kind of goes the other, uh, maybe it doesn't go the other way around, which is, uh, you know, think about Aristotelian physics, quote unquote, uh, as refined by the neo-Aristotelians and uh, what's his name, uh, uh, the late medieval Catholic thinkers, the name is escaping me, that's one of the problems of being old, God damn it. Um, but uh, versus, uh, and it was just talk, right? Uh, it's still amazing to me that it took till Galileo, almost 2,000 years later, to do an experiment that would take a day and a half to roll some disks down an incline and uh, demonstrate so easily. I, I like to talk, refer to these as floating abstractions. This isn't my term, I got it from other people. But often in many of these areas of life through history, some style of talk or, or community of talk or area of talk has developed these words and they become disconnected <laughs> from the rest of life. And people don't mind that disconnection and they just stick in these set of words. We could even think today about Marxism or uh, anti-capitalism as also a related set of floating abstractions where they're not that interested in being specific about what they mean or, or what you would do different. Uh, it's about you know endorsing a certain set of words versus another set of words. Yeah, certainly Marxist-Leninism is a fine example. I mean, George Orwell uh, uh, basically told that story beautifully in 1984, that it was all about words, even when the words made no fucking sense. So we've been you know, repeating these many examples of this phenomenon, but we should like ask to explain it. We should make sure that we have a theory. Why would people be so into just the words when they don't seem very connected to action? And your theory is? The, the basic theory is to say humans are very political, we uh, gr form groups and we form political factions. And a lot of our social life is to, you know, join a faction, show loyalty to a faction, and then try to beat up on the other factions <laughs> so that our faction can win. And 
Factions need ways to tell who's in and out, and words are often powerful loyalty signals of, of who's in and out. And of course, if I say the sky is blue, that's not a very good loyalty signal because everybody says the sky is blue. So often it's an especially potent loyalty signal for a group to say something that ordinary people wouldn't say, either because that sounds crazy or because they don't even, don't even understand what it means. And so often we get these battles over who says which words, and it's less important what the words mean or how it connect to action than that it signals which group we're in and that we're showing loyalty to our group. Yeah, I always talk about American politics, you know, more or less uh, cynically as Team Red versus Team Blue. You know, not only is there a lot of this kind of symbolic talk, but a lot of it's kind of like, how the fuck did they get to this particular combination? For instance, one of the examples I like to use is abortion and Second Amendment rights. Uh, the two teams, Team Red and Team Blue, have chosen what, at least at my level analysis, seem to be uh, an illogical and contradictory uh, setting on those two issues, right? If you use the liberty setting on both, you'd say should be choice on abortion and four Second Amendment rights, but neither party has that setting, right? They have this uh, sort of intention, almost seems almost right. intentional cognitive dissonance uh, on those two issues. And the fact that one is willing to swallow that cognitive uh, dissonance allows you to, to wear the team red or team blue jersey because you basically say, oh, right. so I'm there's a basic contradiction right at the beginning of there's this, you know, this policy space or topic space with a thousand dimensions, and yet somehow we collapse that all down to one dimension. And how is it that we collapse a thousand dimensions down to one dimension? People like to think, well, there's some fundamental ideology that once you understand that ideology, it predicts your positions and all sorts of other positions, right? Uh, but the question is, uh, you know, why? But there isn't such an ideology, actually. Uh, that is, the left-right axis has varied enormously over history uh, across societies. And the common thing is that there's this tendency to form a single axis. And we can understand that in coalition politics terms, but what that axis represents varies greatly over time and space. Uh, there is no fundamental ideology that distinguishes you know, all humans across all space and time, but there is this fundamental tendency to form groups and to be part of us and be against them. <laughs> And to do that, you have to find some way to distinguish what's us and them. And so that's how you correlate all these positions. Once a position becomes politicized, then it's our position and then it's their position. And it doesn't have to have any connection to the other positions. We just sort of make one up. Yep. And of course, in, our, in the U.S. particular constitution, there are very strong uh, institutional biases, the first pass, the post-election uh, system, the presidential electoral college mechanism, et cetera, which even more, off, more strongly than in some other institutional systems, uh, more or less beat with a sledgehammer down to two, you know, two poles, you know, one pole, one dimension, uh, et cetera. You know, I've thrown out a lot the idea of liquid democracy. In fact, I have an essay called An Introduction to Liquid Democracy that uh, proposes a particular variant on it, uh, which I argue would help substantially our system uh, uh, find its way away from this basin of attraction of one dimension only and where you could be for both choice and abortion and for Second Amendment rights and not be incoherent. Well, it might help, but I think there's this fundamental social te tendency that will still end up producing something closer to a one dimension. So I mean, we still see roughly one dimensional politics, even in, say, places that do proportional representation, political systems, etc. Uh, but they still do you know, end up having more variety in their political parties because of those. But uh, it's more of a fundamental human thing.
Israel's an interesting example, right, where there's sort of a collapse to right-left, but it's not by any means pure, right? There's the, you know, the additional dimension of secular versus religious, right? There's the, uh, there used to be the dimension of socialist versus capitalist, I guess you could call it right-left. Uh, you know, there's the position about uh, the you know, two-state versus one-state. So there's a number of, right. uh, uh, it's pretty interesting, actually. I've happened to have d- dived into the history of kibbutzes uh, recently uh, to understand how did kibbutzes hold together despite the fact that they're subject to classic economic hacks like uh, brain drains and uh, adverse selection and uh, shirking, etc. And in that, I learned a lot about Israel you know, along the way. And it's, their, their politics is actually more interesting than ours, uh, even though at some level it does collapse down into two teams, at least the coalition time. Or at least one axis. Yeah, at least one. So, so we've talked about there's this phenomena of right talk where people just focus on talk. And we've talked a little bit about there being a theory of why it would be true. And I think the last main topic to face would have to be your personal stance toward it. You have to decide, do you just want to join the talking world and say things and and join a team and it doesn't really matter what the words mean or what consequences they have? Or do you want to be someone for whom the consequences, the actions matter more? And if that's who you want to be, then you have to have a new stance or attitude toward this talking world. You, you have to decide, well, what do you want to talk about? For, for example, I'd suggest you not have as many opinions as you might otherwise be inclined to have. There's this habit people have in the talking world of whenever there are major topics that everybody's talking about, you have to have an opinion on it too, just so you can take sides and show what side you're on. But you should probably resist that temptation a bit. I'd suggest you have a limited set of topics where you have done some research, where you have done some effort to study it, and then you can have an opinion on that. And when you haven't thought about something much, don't have an opinion, don't express an opinion, and defer to other people. And resist this temptation to just join the talking world and say something about everything everybody else is saying something about. Yeah. I mean, again, the other option is, or a related option, halfway option is to say, all right, I don't know shit about uh, the economics of uh, cheap signaling, but I'll, I'm just going to defer to Robin Hanson on that. Right. If I have a question. I'll- well, yes, you should pick if you need to take an action, you should defer to other uh, sources that you think uh, have, you know, shown some authority or expertise on it. And if you say if somebody challenges, you can say, well, I'm not an expert at this. I'm just deferring to this person I've judged to be more of an expert and you know, yeah. play the game that way. Yeah, unfortunately, social media has brought out the worst in that, in that uh, it's a sort of a performance art where everybody has to have an opinion about everything, even if they don't know jack shit about it. It's amazing the shit I read about vaccines and about COVID and about uh, climate change. That's just utter nonsense. But yet, uh, you know, people feel uh, the need to have a strongly expressed opinion about almost everything. So a lot of people uh, you and I know uh, get very concerned about what they would call rationality which is they see people sloppily choosing beliefs and sloppily supporting some side or the other, and they want to push their being more rational about that, more evidence-based, more logical, et cetera, which is all fine. But what they often miss out is that they are pushing for rational estimates on topics that aren't very actionable. (laughs) So the key idea of decision theory is that information And and estimates are only valuable when they're close to a decision, when they inform a decision, when there's something you would do one way versus another way, uh, if you knew you estimated one way or the other way. Uh, But people are really pulled into arguing about and even arguing about the rationality of various sources and estimates and methods on topics where they really don't have an action. 
they don't have a thing they're going to do one way or the other uh, if they believe one side or the other. And that's really part of right talkism, I would say. You know, even trying to be rational about talk is still somewhat of a waste if you don't know what you're going to do with it. Yep. Uh, though, yeah, yes, and I'd say, but like, say, for instance, anti-vaxxer. There's well, there's a-, a vaccine choice, right? So your key choice is, do I take the vaccine? Yeah. When it's not in front of you, it's not a choice at the moment. You could be preparing for later on when there's a choice, but you still might think, well, when I make the choice later on, won't I have, if there's going to be more information, let's wait till then. But that has to be true for the COVID vaccine. Come on, people. <laughs> Yeah, Look, exactly. we don't know what the COVID vaccine is. We don't know what it's, which one of the various teams is going to produce it, what, it's, what the test stats are. When there's a vaccine, that's the time to argue about whether it's safe to take the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. And arguing about it months and years in advance when we hardly know anything, that's pretty right talk, isn't it? Yeah, it does seem like, especially on social media, right talkism is a big attractor, right? God knows how, how little revenue Facebook would have if right talkism went away. Uh, that would not be a bad thing in my mind. Let's uh, flip to a final topic here before we wrap up this current episode, uh, which is wokeism. Uh, what do you think about wokeism and how it relates to the idea of right talkism? And then let's just talk about wokeism. Well, it's a, you know, one of, you know, many movements in history. It's a current movement. Uh, it's, you know, obviously dominated more by young, passionate people, as often new movements are. And uh, it has lots of elements that many movements have in terms of having some beliefs and having some, you know, things to do and having some sense of who their op- opponents are, etc. cetera. Uh, but compared to other movements and talks in history, this movement is more into, um, what we'd call canceling, you know, identifying people and, and calling them out and trying to get them fired and getting everybody riled up against them. And it's more into sort of uh, doing that about words rather than concrete deeds. I mean, so like Me Too is clearly often about concrete deeds and, and that, you know, makes more sense in terms of changing the world. But often it's just about what words are used to describe people or groups or things like that. Uh, and even very indirect signals like the okay hand signal as, as a, you know, interpreted signal of something. Um, but I guess that the major thing to, to say about the woke world is that they are sort of less into sort of having a coherent worldview and arguments that they want to persuade you with and more want to just use their social power to, to cancel people as the method for pushing their group forward. Um, it's other groups like in history have done that sort of thing. Um, they haven't been looked on necessarily very, you know, favorably from history. You know, if we think of uh, witch hunts or the McCarthy era or, you know, the Cultural Revolution in China, et cetera. But, you know, it is a way people interact and is a way people have, you know, created social solidarity and, and group power in history. Uh, and, you know, we'll have to see how well it, how it plays out, how far it'll get here. Yeah, it seems to me one of the things that's most disturbing about wokeism uh, is that it rejects and actually uh, if it, it uses this bizarre kind of boiled down, flattened version of postmodernism uh, to reject imper- empirical analysis. Right? It's an almost it's an unfalsifiable <laughs> system. And so what I what I want to take your words and change them slightly. Uh, I would say wokeism is wrong talkism uh, to a substantial degree. I mean, a lot of it's just uh, pernicious horseshit, but it can't be self correcting because it's kind of like medieval uh, Catholicism. It, uh, it makes challenging the ideology itself a sin. So early on in my marriage, 
my wife said to me, you're good at arguing, so we're not going to settle everything by argument. (laughs) (laughs) Smart on her part. (laughs) Okay. And there is a point there. You know, you can also settle things by like, sometimes I win, sometimes you win. You know, is it you want this to be one of your wins? There are other ways to settle things other than arguing. And so, you know, you could say that's in a sense, the woke stance here is they've decided, no, we're not going to play your arguing game. We're, we're not going to you know make elaborate arguments that you can then tear apart and try to have counter arguments to. That's not how we're playing this. Yeah, we're just going to have a we're going to have an ideology and you're going to worship it or we're going to kill you. Right. That's who they are. Fucking authoritarian motherfuckers. Right. I hate them. Uh, and. And, you know, I I recently had a guest on the show, James Lindsay, who has a great book, which I read in pre-press version called Cynical Theories, which is coming out, in which he traces the uh, roots of wokeism back to, in a a very careful way, back to uh, uh, deconstructionism and uh, earlier forms of postmodernism and shows how it became flattened and simplified and then lost all of its humor and irony and became essentially an authoritarian, self-contained, self-referential system of right talkism. So I read an essay by his and it you know, certainly seems scholarly and informative. The, the question I have is to what extent is he assuming that a theory is dominant in that world? So, you know, he cites some theorists, people who have books and academic things who write things. But, you know, in some in some worlds in history, theorists dominate and in others, they don't. I'm very aware, aware, well aware of that because early on in my intellectual career, theory was, was high in status in academia. And I went off to try to become a theorist. And over the course of my career, theory has greatly fallen in status. And now theorists don't really dominate in academia. It's more empiricists who dominate. Uh, and so uh, in different times and places, theory is sometimes, you know, given the high status and everybody like follows what theory says. And then other times, theorists are often the side group that's trying to rationalize what other people are doing, but the people doing stuff don't really care what they say. So that would be my question about the woke world. Uh, this person made a convincing case that people who are theorizing close to that world are saying, you know, various sorts of anti-theoretical things, basically. <laughs> saying that, you know, we don't want to play the, the argument game and we don't want to play the, uh, you know, have your sort of uh, game that you play in terms of uh, how you talk about these things. I don't know to what extent ordinary practitioners defer to that, uh, support it or ignore it. Yeah, I think, and I think Lindsay does a great job of showing how uh, what had started out as high theory in the French, uh, you know, tradition has become very much flattened and simplified uh, into a by later a whole bunch of later people. He's very careful about showing how lots of different people have cooked this uh, this stew, and, but it has somehow coalesced into this uh, self self referential, uh, unfalsifiable system. Uh, and again, uh, the other my other critique of any such systems, whether it's medieval right. uh, Catholicism, Marxist Leninism wokeism uh, is that it loses the ability to explore, right? Well, to the extent that the, these kind of theories dominate. So I, I have stronger historical experience with Christianity, and I'm very well aware that ordinary Christians, you know, have strong emotional, social bonds and tendencies and habits, and that there are these theologians out there who theorize about Christianity, and honestly, they don't really have that much influence over most Christians. And often when I've said things about Christianity and some people said, no, the theologians say this other thing. And I go, okay, maybe the theologians do say this, but I know that most Christians feel this way. 
Yeah, and there's some truth to that. And then uh, what some people refer to as the flattening of theory, right? And because, frankly, cognitive load, uh, most people are not going to be able to absorb all the details of high medieval Catholicism. Right? And this is true about politics, too, actually. So, I mean, it's a standard result in politics. I, I got my PhD in formal political theory, so I learned a lot about politics then. It's a standard result that the most ideological people are the most educated and the most extremists, but the vast majority of ordinary voters can't be ideologically consistent because they just really don't know what that is. Yeah. Most people's positions are pretty random and they have some weak correlations, but they don't really have a rationale for it and they don't couldn't explain the rationale. And it's not coming from some set of theorists. In some sense, even in politics, the people who describe ideologies and who formulate them and explain them and argue them to each other, it's more of a subset who are talking to each other, but not really influencing that much the larger population. Yeah. And of course, that provides an attractor for, uh, you know, what would seem to a person of intellectual depth, a weak attractor like team red, team blue thinking. If you are essentially incoherent in your views, then the uh, relative, you know, the, the tribal affiliation can override any kind of thinking you might be doing about the issues. Well, more fundamentally, I'd say the, the tribal affiliation is the main attraction. That's the main game. All this talking is, is more of a rationalization. It's often more of a, of a way to find out who's on what tribe. But the thing people really care about is the tribes. Though, to your point about talkism, when the teams become defined only in terms of talk, then you really got uh, a very difficult situation, very difficult, uh, you know, because if you're talking about action and results and efficacy of policy, you can use empiricism as a way to adjust. If you have two forms of talk, right, that are in mutual opposition, there's really no way forward, just conflict. Well, even more fundamentally, a lot of talk that academics like you, you know, or you and I might do is relatively abstract, and most people really can't even understand the abstract talk. <laughs> so the kind of talk that most ordinary people can understand and use as team indicators is going to be relatively concrete things. So I, I've been, you know, I've seen a lot of news stories over the last few years about people who got canceled for saying relatively concrete things, even if they're misunderstood or mischaracterized. But then I see a bunch of people I know lately say pretty abstract things and even say, you, you, you guys could cancel me for this, but, I, you know, but here's what I believe. But they say it in an abstract way, and then people hardly care. Yeah, that's interesting and somewhat disturbing. I'm a, I suppose it's good at one level, but it's disturbing at another. Uh, so final thoughts. You, 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 hit, you hit it on a little bit of it. What should we do? How should we uh, How should we? personally act so as to escape the clutches of right talkism? Well, you should ask yourself, what do you want to do? <laughs> what do you want other people to do? And try to focus on praising or criticizing people for doing the things you like or don't like, and try to praise or criticize yourself for doing the things you like or don't like. And what, only get into topics and issues and analysis if you can see a sort of relatively direct connection between a belief or an opinion on that and what you would do. And I think that will just drastically cut out the number of topics you're paying attention to. Yeah, and I think that second one is, is almost as important as the first. Well, Robin, I think we're going to wrap up right there. Uh, as always, a very interesting conversation. It's great to talk to you again. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.